Would you pray with me? Father, we are so very grateful for your word. We pray that truths that we know and have learned maybe decades ago would be alive to us even this morning, that we wouldn't grow numb to them, but that they would pierce our soul and penetrate our hearts and find fertile soil to grow in. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few decades, Hollywood has produced lots and lots of movies that have, uh, as kind of one of their central plots, central themes, characters that have problems with, with memory, whether it's total amnesia, you know, they can't remember anything, or they have problems creating new memories. So, for example, there was the romantic comedy Fifty First Dates, right? Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore. Uh, Adam Sandler meets and kind of falls in love with, with Drew Barrymore and wants to wound her. Not wound her, woo her. <laughs> Uh, difference there. Uh, uh, the problem is, every night when she falls asleep, when she wakes up in the morning, she's lost all recollection of the previous day. So he has to go through this process of meeting her and getting a first date with her over and over and over again. Uh, a similar movie is Memento. It's similar, but it's darker, more violent, a lot more profanity, and it's not funny like at all. Like, like at all. Uh, but the central character, again, has no, no ability to make new memories. He knows who he is, but each day, actually each conversation, he, he loses the memory. So if he has a long conversation, he doesn't even remember why he began it in the beginning. Memento isn't a love story. It's a story of a man trying to solve a crime of who killed his wife and he's losing the clues every day. Uh, you could look at the born. Which one's the first one? Born identity, right? So he, he comes to consciousness floating in the Mediterranean Sea, pulled on by a fish, but he doesn't remember anything about his life, who he is, how he got there. He's got some crazy good skills at like hot-wiring cars and fighting and shooting people, but he doesn't even know how he learned these things. Great movies. And they reflect a little bit of real life, too. We have trouble remembering things. My wife is amazed at my memory, because I can remember things like uh, song lyrics from songs that came out when I was 12, and movie quotes from movies I saw 10 years ago, but I can't remember what she told me you know, 30 minutes ago. And I say, I have trouble remembering, but I'm going to use the collective because I think it's a collective problem. We have trouble remembering not just trivial things, but incredibly important things. Like who we are truly, really. We have to remind ourselves of these things over and over again, and thankfully God has given us the means to do that in his word. We're beginning a new series for the month of July. Uh, Who Are You is the series title. It's just a way of reminding ourselves of who we are at our core. And this week we begin, well, at the beginning, in Genesis with the creation account. There's lots of ways and lots of things we can glean and should 
take time to glean about the Genesis creation account, but we are really going to focus specifically on the creation of mankind. No matter how you read Genesis, from very literal to more artistic narrative, no matter how you read the book of Genesis, I think we're compelled to affirm that God created man as more than just a lucky animal. He is, in some sense, the capstone, the purpose of God's creation. He's crowned with a purpose and a dignity that sets him apart from all the rest of God's creation. He is an image bearer. And that's really kind of the main point of the message this morning. The image... Did I go too far? Yeah. Being an image bearer sets mankind apart from the rest of God's creation. He's distinct. He's unique. He bears a dignity that sets him apart. I've been reading a book recently. It's called A Brief History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. Uh, The book starts, and it's just one of these kind of awe-inspiring books, because it takes you on a tour of, you know, galaxies, and just the expanse of our solar system, and the numbers alone are mind-boggling. And when you think that there are stars out there that exploded millennium ago, and we're still seeing the light because they're so far, it's just, it's mind-boggling. And just the expanse of, even the earth, And then you think how many earths can fit. It's an incredible read. And it just makes you think and sit in awe of the work of God's hand. Sadly, that is not my reaction to my common interactions with my fellow humans. I don't look at the guy who nearly crushes me from behind on 37 and think, you are just a wonderful display of God's workmanship right? Uh, It's not how I think, but there are clues from the text that tell me that's how I should think. I should be in awe at the image of God that is imprinted on every single one of us. To begin, God's going in this creative process And this creation narrative, this creation poem, it's clipping along at a really good pace. God did this. God did this. God did this. And then you get to verse 26, and there's a pause where God deliberates. There's a divine kind of interaction, a divine deliberation, a divine counsel going on before he creates man. He says, let us create man in our image in our likeness, so they can rule over what we have done. John Calvin says that in taking counsel, God shows us, he testifies that he is about to undertake something great and wonderful. It's kind of like the, the pregnant pause before the finale at the July 4th fireworks. It's announcing something great and wonderful is about to happen. God deliberates, 
And then God creates man in his own image, male and female, he creates them. So there's this pregnant pause that shows us God's about to do something fantastic when he creates humanity in his own image. But the creation account itself is even different. It's more immediate, more direct. Throughout the creation account, over and over and over again, five times in just the section about animals, we read, and God created, and they created according to their kind. According to their kind. According to their kind. Five times. But when you get to man, you realize he's not just in this cycle of according to their kind. He's breaking out of it. He's not in the genus of animal. He's completely different. He is, shockingly, in the genus of God. He's created after God's image. In a very direct and immediate way. When you move into chapter 2, and I know I should have had Rosie read more and read into chapter 2 as well, the lens focuses even tighter on the creation of mankind. And you see God do something with mankind that he doesn't do with any other part of his creation. He takes what is, what is human and he breathes life into it. He imparts something of his own life into humanity. Theologians have debated whether or not that's an impartation of the soul into mankind or if it's an endowment of the Holy Spirit into mankind. Much like in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, now receive the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, it's something unique and special. It shows us that Humanity isn't just a part of that ongoing animal creation. According, to, There's something special. God breathes uniquely into man, and they become a living soul. And God gives mankind dominion over everything, over the fish, over the birds, over the land, the sea, and the animals. Not to abuse and overuse, but to be stewards of, to rule. God is the ultimate sovereign of his creation. But he created an appointed man to be his vice regents, to rule on his behalf over his creation. And after God had done this, after he had formed and shaped man, as now my creation is very good. All along, it's been good. It's been good. But now, when man and woman are on the scene, it is very good. Being an image bearer sets mankind apart from the rest of creation. More dignified, more noble, of more worth. Because we bear the indelible mark of God. But what does that mean? What does the image of God entail? What does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Well, I don't think you can boil it down to any one simple thing. It it qualifies everything 
that a human is and that a human is created to do. Again, theologians have kicked around for centuries. Is there a difference between being created in the image of God and the likeness of God? Maybe the image of God refers to our ability to reason and to rationalize. And the likeness, maybe that's our, our righteousness. And we lost that. I think that is an over-detailed account of what is Hebrew poetry. There's parallelism here. Likeness explains and qualifies image. They're the same thing. We're made in the image and the likeness of God. Others have tried to, to locate the image of God in a specific attribute of humanity. Maybe it's our ability to reason or our ability to verbally communicate or our ability, our, our moral sense. Maybe that's what the image of God is. That we have a conscience. Or that we're spiritual. And we have a sense of the divine. Maybe that's what the image of God is. Others have looked at it in a more functional kind of way. What is it that we do that reflects the image of God? We create. We relate. We love. We worship. Is that what the image of God means? I think yes. I think we need a holistic view of what the image of God entails. It qualifies everything we are and everything that we were created to do. We worship, we love, we create, we do because of who, or more rightly, because of what we are. Mankind does what it does because it is what it is. We are image bearers. Has image been, been lost because of sin, because of the fall? The short answer is, is no. It's been marred, it's been tainted, twisted, but not lost. We still all, those sinners, bear the image of God, that imprint on us. And so we all still have a, an inherent dignity, an inherent worth. You move ahead in the creation accounts, in the Genesis stories, and you get to Genesis chapter 9. It's after the flood, and God is relating to Noah. And God says that if someone takes a life, of them a life will be required. Because mankind is created in the image of God. Even after the fall, man bears that indelible mark of the image. It wasn't lost, it was distorted. And what was distorted by the fall has been restored by Christ and will one day be perfected. Jesus, the perfect Adam, the exact image of God, comes to redeem us and restore the image in us. So the Apostle Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3 that we ought to put on the new self. We are new creations and we ought to put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of the Creator. Or in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into His image 
with ever-increasing glory. It's being renewed in us and will one day be perfected. Again, to quote John Calvin, I know I'm in danger of overquoting him, but I don't really think you can overquote John Calvin. He says there's many things in this corrupted nature which may induce contempt. In other words, when we look at one another, there's a lot to hate. But if you rightly weigh all circumstances, man is, among other creatures, a preeminent specimen of divine wisdom, justice, and goodness. It's a wonderful thing to be in awe of God's creation. We also ought to be in awe of the image of God represented in each and every one of us. This is a kind of cornerstone of good Christian theology. And it's important. All theology is important, some more so than others. If we have different views on how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, that's theology. It's not that important. This is incredibly important theology. It determines how we view ourselves and how we view others around us. So how do we respond? How do we respond to the truth that we are created in the image of God and so is the person sitting next to you and so is the person on the other side of the globe? We bear the image of God. Well, I'm going to ask us to respond in a 3D, three-directional kind of way. First, in an inward direction. In an inward direction, we need to recognize and value the image of God in ourselves. This is not a a shallow kind of, uh, oh, what's the Saturday Night Live skit where the guy always looked in the mirror, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people, Stuart Smalley, right? And gosh darn it, people, I'm not talking about that. This isn't shallow self-esteem. This is a deep, real esteem. I have probably more pet peeves than I ought to. One of them is people who chew gum loudly. Uh, Jake, I'm looking at you. Uh, uh, Another one is when people tell my kids, especially my kids, but any kids, but especially my kids, they can be anything they want to be. No, they can't. (laughs) My son Caleb, he's way smarter, way smarter than I am. But he's got all the grace and coordination God gave a baby giraffe on ice. Okay? I mean, he does not have a future as a figure skater. Okay? Jake's great, great at baseball. He is never going to be an Olympic hurdler. Luke, not to single, I can't leave Luke out. He's great at basketball. He's never going to be an NBA center. He's not going to be 6'8 or 6'10. They can't be anything they want to be. But their worth, their value, is not in what they do. It's not in their gifts and talents. It's in what they are. They are image bearers. We are image bearers. 
our worth, our value isn't in our titles. It's not in our paycheck. It's not in the homes. It's not in our gifts and talents and abilities. It's in the fact that we were created in the image of God and we bear that mark. We need to celebrate that, own that, and live up to that responsibility. Dorothy Sayers noted that when Jesus was asked about taxes, do you remember the story in the Gospel of Mark? He was asked about taxes. Should we pay our taxes to Rome? He said, well, give me a coin. He took the coin. He said, whose image is on that coin? And they rightly said, Caesar's. And Jesus responded, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. So whose image is on you? It's God's. You bear his mark. He created you. Render unto God that which is God's. Give to him your life, your service, your love. Recognize and value the image of God in ourself. Second direction is the outward direction. Recognize and value the image of God in others. In all others. Reading the creation account, the image of God isn't reserved for some class of humanity and not others. There is a unity in the human race. All bear the image of God. All bear this indelible mark. All have this worth and value and dignity. And so we work, or ought to work, to make human life more human. And that is an incredibly challenging endeavor. Because in virtually all corners of our experience and our world, we are taught to devalue the other. I want to say here that my next couple sub-points might be read as political statements. They're absolutely not. I'm not addressing policy or law. I'm not talking to policymakers or lawmakers. I'm talking to us, the church. And I want to address our attitudes, our hearts, our actions, even the way we talk. Because human life is being devalued in many different ways. It's being devalued at the extreme ends of life, from life that is unborn to the very aged. We are told that we become the arbiters of what lives are valuable of what lives have a dignity and a worth. And that is simply not our role. God has endowed all human life with dignity and worth and value. That is being challenged at the extreme ends of life. It's also being challenged at the borders of our communities. Literal and figurative communities. Some devalue life because that life comes from the 
comes from south of the Rio Grande, or comes from the wrong side of a line drawn on a map by some politicians, or the wrong side of the tracks, or the wrong side of town, or an urban ghetto, or a rural, rural holler, or the wrong side of a political divide, outside of our political community, all those things. It, you can read endless articles about a resurgence of American tribalism and what a danger that is to our nation. And it is. It is. But I'm more concerned about how profoundly unbiblical and unchristian it is. For us to get stuck in any kind of tribalism, political, national, or other. Because all humanity bears the image of God and is of infinite value and worth. A few weeks ago, I, I know this sermon's heavy on movie illustrations. Sorry about that. A few weeks ago, I saw a truly great movie called Arrival. It's a sci-fi movie, so it's probably not everyone's cup of tea. But it makes some really interesting points. It's built on a linguistics theory called the sapir whiff. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I'm just trying to sound smart at this point, right? Sapir whiff hypothesis. That language changes how we think. I don't know anything about the linguistic theory and its merit. But I do know when I start talking in ways that devalue people, it will shape how I think, how I feel, and how I act towards other people. Whether that language comes in the form of racial slurs that devalue others, or it comes in more politically correct ways, like calling people rednecks, hillbillies, Illegals, Trumpkins, Cupcakes. We could go down the list of all the ways that we speak that dehumanize the other. We talk about things like the homeless problem instead of homeless people. Or of the immigration crisis instead of immigrants. Or the addiction crisis instead of people with addictions. Just subtle, small ways that the human is removed from the equation. And their dignity and their worth and their value is diminished. It's devalued with the borders of our communities. I think we're also often in danger of devaluing the image of God and those who worship falsely. The image of God is a Christian doctrine, but it's not something that only marks Christians. It's everyone. Everyone is created in the image of God and bears that mark, whether they worship rightly or wrongly. And I believe there is a right and a wrong way to worship. But even those who worship 
wrongly bear the image of God. In fact, the fact, in fact, the fact that they worship at all is a testimony to the fact that they were created in the image of God. They are homo religiosus, the religious man, a man who has the sense of the spiritual and the divine. That's a touch point. It's evidence that they ought to be treated with respect and dignity. I think we're also often in danger of devaluing the image of God and the humanity of the sinner, especially when their sin is particularly offensive to us. I'm so glad that God didn't do that to me. Devalue and depreciate my worth because my sin offended him. Because it certainly does. Understanding the image of God in us means we have to understand and appreciate it in others and value it as well. To steal and alter C.S. Lewis's words a little bit, he says it's a serious thing to live in a society of people who bear the image of God. It's a serious thing to walk amongst people who have been stamped indelibly with the mark of their creator and have such worth. I said that this is important theology, and I think it, it really, truly is. Because I know of no other view of man than the Christian view, which can, can protect a society against racism, sexism, xenophobia, wicked nationalism, genocide, infanticide, euthanasia, on and on and on. I know of no other view of man that can be the foundation upon which we could build a society where all people are treated with respect and dignity. The Christian view of man is so utterly important. But I said a three-dimensional or three-directional approach. I think we need to, this is the upward direction, We must seek relationship with God in order to experience our humanity to its fullest. To experience humanity in its fullest, we must be properly related to God. We were created to be in relationship with God. To experience humanity in its fullness, we have to be in right relationship with God to experience that. Salvation, I think sometimes we have a narrow view of salvation, that it's just about being forgiven for sins. And it is that, thank you, hallelujah, but it's more. It's also being restored. It's about God through Christ making humanity all that it was created to be. Restoring humanity to its true self. And that can only be done in proper relationship with God. I hope that we leave here this morning encouraged about our own dignity and worth, but maybe this sermon is not so much an encouraging sermon as it is a challenging one. I hope you leave here challenged to uphold and even celebrate the dignity of those, yeah, those that it's easy to celebrate it in, but especially those who it's hard 
to find and to celebrate their dignity, their value, and their worth. Because even our worst opponents in whatever sphere of life bear the image of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who represents to us most fully the image of God in human flesh. Father, we thank you that through your Son we can be conformed more and more into that image. We pray that in that process of being transformed more and more into the image of your Son, that you would work in us the ability, the willingness, the heart to see it and to affirm it and to encourage it in others as well. Father, we pray that you would give us the heart to encourage it in the sense that we point people to you where they can most fully experience what it means to be truly, truly human. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.